Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 5, Episode 38. In Episode 38, we talked about Part 2 of our docuseries that was titled Memories. And Part 2, again, was the second half of the first episode on Oxygen. So we still have two more hours to go after this. And this episode, or this part of the series, uh, is when we were introduced to Carlos Seals, to uh, George Taylor. We met Susanna Ryan, who's the the woman that showed us about the MBAC testing, the DNA specialist. We saw Jim Clementi again. We heard from Bobby Posey. A lot of new people that we've never heard from before in this case. And I am joined today, of course, remotely by Mr. Mike Bussing, who is in NBI Studios Remote One. Hey, guys. and. I want to call you out. Uh, I'm only in NBI Studios Remote One now because I'm actually on this show. But when I listened to <laughs> your Bob and Weave episode, Zach was in NBI Studios Remote One, and I was in NBI Studios Remote Three. You know, I forgot. I forgot that you edit all of our podcasts, and you were, and you heard that. <laughs> that. That's my bad. So yeah. Mike is. Mike is in in remote three, and then in NBA Studios remote one, evidently, is Mr. Zach Weaver. Hey, guys. You're not as much fun as Mike, Zach. I'm sorry. guys. You can tell which one of the the three of us is confined to just the house with his wife and kids. So so Mike is home with just his fiance. I'm here with my wife and kids, but I have a remote office where I can actually go to work. And Zach is the only one that is just completely confined. And you can you can tell that the life has been sucked out of him. <laughs> you can just see the life sucked out of my eyeballs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but all right. So we're going to try to provide for you guys a, a podcast that makes sense. Mike's been doing a great job of making him sound good. We've got a lot of listener questions. So let's get started right after this break. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro, driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost. All right, our first question comes from Pamela. Do you have an attorney in Arkansas or other jurisdiction to help navigate the legalities of requesting and pursuing the testing of evidence? Someone working on behalf of the convicted or the victim's families, perhaps. It seems like a podcaster would not have any legal recourse to compel the state to act. Or are you just relying on public pressure? Well, I mean, this is kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but I know in episode or part two, I did make at least my first contact or first reach out to Scott Ellington. So it is, I guess it's relevant to the conversation. Uh, Yeah, we have attorneys. We've had attorneys working down there. Understand that it wasn't just me contacting Ellington. We had the production team. We had attorneys, uh, attorneys that work with the defendants that were all trying. So it wasn't like just me, the podcaster or TV host that was trying to contact Ellington. We were using other more official channels as well, and he was still just ignoring all of that during the during the production. Uh, and and yeah, we still have we have more official channels working now still. Adding to that, she asks: Is the West Memphis Three plea agreement a public document? She says, I'm interested in the restrictions put in place and if Damien, Jesse, and Jason have any options for requesting testing of evidence. Uh, yeah, I, I've read it, so it is. I, 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 think, I think I got it off the Callahan website, so I would check there. But it's, it's definitely out there in the public. They, you know, the, the case is, with the Alford plea, with any plea deal or with any conviction, the case is officially closed. But you know, the, the, there's federal... 
guidelines that say that you know that you always have the opportunity to to test more evidence to present new and compelling evidence and then that gets that gets truncated down a little bit by each state and Arkansas certainly hasn't been one of the best for for producing evidence or allowing people to do testing but there there's no there's nothing that can be put into that plea deal that says that Damien, Jason, or Jesse cannot request any future testing because that can always be done even when there appears to be finality of justice when a case has been fully adjudicated. Usually, sometimes you got to fight it and, and take it all the way up to the Supreme Court, but you can always request more testing. All right, Monica says, Are you sure the evidence still exists to be tested? When was the last time that you know of someone handling it? And Tank adds to that, I seem to remember back in the day, several Arkansas citizen supporters were allowed to look at the evidence files at the West Memphis Police Department. Can't that still be requested to see if it's all still there? It, well, I mean, problem number one is it wasn't like Ellington denied me access to the evidence. He just wouldn't return a phone call. So even to set up a you know, to schedule to come look at it right now uh, seems like that would be kind of an impossible task. But I did do that. I mean, I was I was allowed to. It's been a couple of years years ago, but prior to making the TV series, I asked for the opportunity to go in and look at the files. And Ellington in his office, his assistant, they were they were pretty great. I mean, I never met him, but his assistant was great. And she they they brought all the files into the office. There were boxes everywhere, and I spent a whole day going through all of them and copying some things that I, I ha- either weren't on Callahan or I hadn't seen on Callahan. We talked about all that back during s- season five. And we had discussions about the evidence then. And from what I was told, basically all of the physical evidence is still preserved. They still they still have it. It's been it's still preserved and it's still available for testing. And that's and that's and that's a big part of the reason why you know, I, I'm making the push to get that evidence tested because it's, unless something's changed, all of it's still there. And I don't think that they would destroy it, you know, even though the case has been, uh, as I said earlier, fully adjudicated because of the, the Alfred plea. It is still a murder case. And there are, um, gosh, I can't remember the, the term that I'm looking for. Basically, each state has different laws about how long they have to preserve evidence. Oftentimes, if it is a murder case, they're required to keep it for like like 30 years, sometimes 99 years, however long it is, beyond the conviction because of advances in technology. You know, murder is such a, such a huge case and such long sentences. So t- typically, I'm trying to think in Texas when we went through this, it was something to the extent of basically they had to keep the evidence in a murder case or in any case for a number of years past when the the convicted person fully serves their sentence. So if somebody had 99 years, I think that's where the 99 was sticking in my head because Ed had 99 years was his sentence. So if somehow he lived that whole 99 years, served his full sentence, and was released at you know 140 years old, they would still have to have the evidence then and then continue to have it for a number of years after that. So what is the likelihood or possibility that the evidence has been contaminated. Oh, I'm sure it's been contaminated. You know, the evidence handling procedures weren't great back in 1993. I mean, we see, um, I don't know, did it, did Zach, did you or Mike, either of you guys, did you guys watch Discovery ID actually put out a special on the West Memphis Three this past weekend, a, little, a three hour special? Did either of you guys watch that? I actually haven't yet. I have it recorded and planned to watch it. And I just haven't got around it. It's not exactly something I want to watch with my kids all the time. So, and I have my kids all the time. So right, it's been right. hard to find some TV time for myself. Yeah, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna add to their numbers. <laughs> right. Yeah. There was. Yeah. There's. There's a little bit of animosity there because they knew that we were doing our thing when they decided to do their thing. But I watched it. You know, I was curious if there's anything new there. And yeah, you know, I'm not gonna r- rag on them. I think it was. It was well put together. But it was. It's basically three hours of. It's like Paradise Lost over three hours. It's all about the original crime, the original investigation, the original conviction leading up to the Alfred plea. I mean, there's there's nothing new there. Dan, I won't spoil it for people, but Dan Stidham, who was Jesse Miss Kelly's attorney, uh, was on the show. And in the last, like, the only new information in the entire series was in the last two minutes of the third episode, Stidham said something that... Uh, 
was kind of new information that you know I I dis I like Dan I know Dan personally but I I disagree with him wholeheartedly and actually I've never heard him say any of those two things but part of what he said was there was a, there was a so I guess I'm gonna spoil some of it he mentioned a swab from the the penis of one of the boys like a that they use for DNA testing and the results it got from that DNA testing but we have we have photos from the autopsy or from crime scene where there's literally somebody with, with bare hands, no gloves pointing and touching areas of the body, including that area of the body. So to give you an idea about the contamination, I mean, so somebody clearly stuck their finger, put their DNA on the boy's bodies after that. Never, that would never happen today. But, but so that's the downside. Yes. It's probably contaminated one way or another, but the upside is, that doesn't necessarily matter if we're comparing the profile. If we're able to test the evidence and get profiles and we're able to then compare it to the profiles of suspects that we already have. We, so, you know, there, there's, they have DNA profiles for, of course, the convicted three. Uh, they have DNA profiles for, I believe, John Mark Byers, Terry Hobbs. Uh, I'm trying to think of who else they have. Uh, David Jacoby, uh, several other people. They, they have these profiles. So, even if, what I'm getting at is even if the evidence is contaminated, say they test the shoelaces with MVAC and they get four or five profiles. Okay, so some of the profiles may be police officers or the ME or whoever. But if one of the profiles is one of the suspects and they find that profile on multiple evidence, it doesn't matter that there's also a police officer's DNA on there too. Let's say, for example, uh, let's say let's say the three are guilty. Let's let's say they we we test the evidence and we find Damian Eccles' DNA on the shoelaces, uh, and we find it in multiple pieces of evidence. But we also find several other people's unknown DNA on there. Well, it really doesn't make a difference for Damian if his DNA is found on those bindings, then he's guilty. You know what I mean? Yeah, because he has no reason of being there. Where the police officers' DNA, they they're obviously there for a reason. Exactly right. Yeah. So. You know, and and if if we're able to test it and they get profiles and and all of the profiles don't match any of the suspects, then of course you'd want to run through CODIS and you know other databases, Jed Match, and see if we can figure out who they are. And they may come back to be cops. There may be nothing there. Who knows? But you know, we're looking for to see if any of the suspects that we have, who we have full profiles for, if their DNA is found on that evidence. All right, Brittany says, according to the Oxygen series, it seemed like Carlos Seals is the last person to see the boys, but I thought Chris Wall was. Do you still think Chris was the last to see the boys alive that night? You know, in the during season five, Chris Wall had a sighting. I think it was like at six forty-five. I'm 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 totally drawing from memory right now, so so these details may not be accurate. But the the problem with Chris Wall's statement is is that we looked into it further. It got real shaky about as far as the time he got off work. I think he was, I think his dad had picked him up and given him a ride home. And there, there were just, there were a lot of things about Chris Wall's statement that didn't add up to it being accurate. So it may have been a different time. It may have been different boys. It was enough that I had to kind of remove his statement from the timeline. Doesn't mean that it wasn't accurate, but there's just, there was enough conflicting information to say that I can't definitively say that it was accurate and that so that the timeline that we came up with that that's what it's based on is which statements do we have which original witness statements and witness statements do we have that can be corroborated and seem to be credible and accurate and chris walls just didn't meet the standard so i know in the episode you mentioned that you had actually spent quite a bit of time with carlos seals and i I know on the tv show you know everything's edited down it seems pretty quick um, is there, you know, in the time that you spent with him, is there something that really set it off to be credible for you? Well, the, the, to begin with, Carlos knew Chris Byers, like knew him well, knew okay. him and, and his brothers. So as opposed to like Chris Wall was like, yeah, I saw these kids who were on bikes. Yeah. One of them was blonde. One of them, you know, it, you know, okay. Well, that was probably them. Carlos absolutely knows very well Chris Byers. His name was in, you know, there are police reports that indicate that he absolutely did see the boys that day from back in 93. Bobby, Bobby Posey, who also said that, you know, he had seen Chris and, and in that police note, Carlos Seals name is mentioned. So there's a lot of evidence to indicate that Carlos Seals did, in fact, 
see the boys that day. And and part of that, again, is because he, you know, as far as the identification of who he saw, he knows him and he had a conversation with him. So that fit. And then uh, and then when, when we compared his statement, that's what a lot of was missing. It was kind of too deep into the weeds to, to flesh out very quickly in a TV series is, you know, it was comparing what he was telling us to other statements that we have, what what Kim Wilson said, what Ben Crafton said, what Dana Moore said, what you know, all these other witnesses. There was a uh, Deborah. I'm trying to remember the name. There's there's some people that lived in the area. There's all these people that had statements about what they saw from back in '93, and Carlos's statement, you know, fits with all of those. So there's all of those things together lead me to believe that that his statement is credible and and accurate although as as i pointed out on the in the episode the sleeping bags i don't necessarily know about the sleeping bags just because of what we know about memories that was kind of the whole point of this episode you know and and jim explained very well how your brain will fill in gaps with what you expect to be there when you can't recall things and he also said that you know there's there's studies that say every time you retell a story you you actually change the memory you know, your your brain fills in some little gap in the story when you tell it or when you re- retell it, and then that becomes part of the original memory, even though it didn't really exist. So, you know, he said that the boys told him they were going camping in the woods. And I wonder, I mean, it's possible that they had sleeping bags. And if they did, that would, that to me would mean that the killer took the sleeping bags with them when they fled the scene. That's possible. Personally, my theory is I don't I don't think that that's what happened. I think that they told him that they were going in the woods and they were gonna they were gonna camp in the woods. You know, uh, remember, no one knows when Carlos saw those boys, he didn't know they were in trouble, didn't know that they were gonna get killed, didn't know any of those things. So it wasn't like, you know, oh, that's what you're going to do. That's dangerous. It was just some kids that he knew saying, yeah, we're gonna go. It could not. They, maybe they didn't say camping. Maybe they said they were just going into. You know, we're going to go hang out in the woods or we're going to go hide out in the woods or camp in the woods, whatever it was. And I think that over the years of recalling that memory and retelling the story, that the the sleeping bag thing may have just been a, a part of the memory that kind of got inserted into his mind. I'll tell you this. I believe wholeheartedly that Carlos Seals 100% believes there were sleeping bags on the bikes. I just can't tell you if if that's a, a true memory or or not. But I can tell you that, uh, how long was it, ago was it? Ten years ago, he did talk to another investigator who I've spoken to. And ten years ago, he told her the same thing, that there were sleeping bags on the bike. So, or on the bikes. So, who knows about the sleeping bags? But yeah, it was, it was all those things together that seemed, that corroborated Carlos's story enough to where I believe that he did absolutely see the boys and he saw them around 6, 6.30 closer to 6.30, and that so he would be one of the last people to see them alive. All right, and then Jesse just wants me to clarify, there are no crime scene photos or documents of the sleeping bags, right? Right. As I mentioned on the uh, in, in the episode, there is one. It's, I don't think it's a crime scene photo. Somebody has screenshot the um, crime scene video, but on the bank when they were when they were investigating the crime scene, they were stacking up all of the the evidence they found. So you see, you know, Michael Moore's hat. There's some shoes, different clothes, you know, stuff they found. They were putting on a stack on the side of the bank, which again, when you get to contamination, probably they weren't wearing gloves when they grabbed those things out of the water, and they probably shouldn't have just been sitting on the bank like that. They probably all should have been bagged individually as they were being pulled out. But in that photo, there's this what to me looks like a green gunny sack, which I would assume is probably full of equipment that they were using. You know, because this wasn't a normal crime scene. They needed shovels. They had a they had a, um, a trash pump pumping out the water. There was a lot of different things they they were using they don't normally use. So my my thought was always that that was full of equipment. Some people have theorized that that is actually a backpack. I'm not going to say that it's not very well, maybe, but there's no backpack logged into the evidence. Uh, so to to me, that just doesn't look like it could be a backpack. But if, if that's not a backpack, then there's then there was no backpack on the scene that we know of. All right, this one's from Kathy. Why do you have more faith in Carlos Seals' sighting than Jamie Clark Ballard's? I believe they contradict each other, and he said the boys had sleeping bags, yet none were found. I believe Jamie said that the boys were in the backyard between 5.30 and 6.30. 
not from 5.30 and 6.30. I'm just curious. Well, Jamie's statement says that at 5.30, and again, working on memory here, but but that around 5.30 is when she saw the boys in the backyard. And so they were back in the backyard for a period of time after that. She didn't say she watched them the whole time from 5.30 to 6.30, but she's very clear that it was at precisely 6.30 because she got picked up to go to her um, church's youth group that night on Wednesday nights, and they picked her up at 6.30, and that it was at 6.30 that she walked out, and that's when the boys came shooting out from behind the backyard. So the, the implication there is that they were there from 5.30 when she originally saw them back there until 6.30. The, the difference between Jamie's statement and Carlos's statement is Carlos does have some details that are, are not provably false, but they're unverifiable. So the sleeping bags. We have no proof that there weren't sleeping bags, but there's no way to, to verify that there actually were. So that could be a false statement. That could be false memory. With Jamie's statement, there are multiple things in there that are provably false. You know, it, it regards to everything from walking home from school with Ryan, who Ryan says that didn't happen to you know, all three boys were on bikes when only two of them were on bikes and seeing Ryan at school the next day. It's just one thing after another after another or just absolutely cannot be true. But more so than that is the fact that her statement is in direct conflict with not just Carlos Seals. Yes, she is in conflict with Carlos Seals' statement, but also we have multiple dozens of other statements, other witnesses that contradict her, that say that the boy, you know, it, it, it's minutia, it's little things you got to look at. So, you know, at at six fifteen, and, and I'm, I'm not, I don't remember if this is specifically six fifteen, but say, you know, at at six ten, six oh five, there's a witness that says Michael Moore is alone up on Proctor Street. And at about that same time, we know that Chris Byers, or just before that, was at home, you know, cleaning under the carport. That that was witnessed and verified. And then there's, a, you know, all these different times where Michael's alone, Chris is alone, Chris and Michael are together, Michael and Stevie are together. All these different witness statements from all over the, uh, all from the other end of the completely other end of the neighborhood, all contrary. So in order for for Carlos's statement to be accurate. That means Jamie's statement is inaccurate, but he fits with all of the other statements around. In order for Jamie's statement to be accurate, all of the other statements have to be inaccurate. All of the statements taken within days of the murder have to be inaccurate for her statement that she gave 15 years later to be accurate. Yeah, I think you covered this really well during the season that you were investigating it. And I, and I could be wrong. I'm, I'm, you know, trying to go off what I remember from it, but I believe there was something, there was something with the youth group that night that the time wasn't accurate to what she said. There was something verifiable with the time of the youth group too, I believe. That might've been, I, I remember trying very hard to track that information down and I don't think that I was able to, but somebody else may have, I, I don't know. You may be, you may be right about that too. Matt wants to know, do you intend to shoot a follow-up series? You probably have enough cutting room footage for another series of shows as it is. I could see how emotionally draining it was for you. Well, th that's a big question right now because uh, Hollywood is shut down at the moment completely. Nobody's working. Uh, you know, people, obviously people are working from home, but no one is filming anything. So by the way, if you have certain, you know, if you have shows that you're hoping are going to be produced and movies that you're looking forward to, I know, Mike, you were really looking forward to the new Batman. Yeah. You're going to have to wait longer because it's, you know, I've, I've had some, a couple conference calls in the last few days and just nothing's happening right now. So what I can tell you is that our ratings were fantastic. We were really, really happy with them. We were actually the number one show on auction for the weekend, which is a big deal for a, a new show, a new series. So we were happy with that. Oxygen was happy with that. Typically, this would be the time when we would start talking about, no, let's make another season or a follow-up or something, but nobody's working right now. So uh, I don't know, but as far as um, me personally, if you would ask me that question, if I would be willing to do another season last May when we wrapped, I would have said no. There's not, contrary to what many believe, there's not much money in unscripted TV. I mean, it's, it's nothing life-changing, the amount of money you make from doing this. And you're exactly right. It was extremely emotionally, physically 
and mentally draining on me the process and you know obviously you, you guys saw the you know the big burly guy with tears in my eyes on multiple occasions through that and that was obviously you guys know that I have a big heart and that is you know I'm a I'm a crier me and Zach are the criers of the group for sure but there there it, it was compounded because I was something about the the sheer exhaustion from working 16 hour days for three months, six days a week, traveling. You know, on, on my days off, I was traveling and being away from my family. I missed my son's birthday. You know, there was just, it, it was weighing on me. And there was a few instances where I broke down in the interview room. That's the, the room where I was wearing the blue shirt that, that didn't even make sense to me. Like it was, for example, you know, at the very beginning of the, the first act of the first episode, you know, I start talking about Ed Eights and how he missed the birth of his 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 son, and I broke down. That was super weird for me. It was so that is something I have, of course, been very emotional about before Ed and his case and all of that. But I've told that story a thousand times, and for some reason, I actually was recording that that we were filming that interview on my son's birthday, which I, I don't know if that played a part in or what, but it was it. I, I don't know how to explain it, but it was very strange for me where I would be just talking about something that shouldn't normally make me emotional, and then out of nowhere, I would get hit with these these just, just waves of emotion. And I think it was the exhaustion. I think it was the being away from my family. And it was also, I was, you, know, you got to keep in mind, I was wrapped up in sadness for three months, for three months every day. I was talking to people who have been directly affected by the murders of three eight-year-old boys, and I don't know if it's just my, my personal type of empathy. I don't know, but it was like it was like I was just absorbing all of that from the people I was interviewing. So at the end of the thing, I was so drained when we were done filming. I remember coming home being like, "I will never do that again. That was not worth it. It was horrible." But then. The editors got together and they cut the cut the show together, and I got to watch it and watch the results and the reactions—not ratings, but the reactions of people and how they're engaging in this fight again, and how how we have rebreathed new life into this case, and that we're working towards actually solving it, that we've accomplished what we were hoping to accomplish. And when once I saw that. I got on the phone to John John Cryer immediately and said, "We need another season. Let's do it again." And it, because I, what what he knew at the beginning of this could be so powerful that I couldn't necessarily see that I was trusting him. He was right, and it was, and and I'm ready to do it again. So, you know, if, if Hollywood ever gets back to work, which they will, um, and if Oxygen wants to do another series, then yes, I would be in into doing another one. As far as follow up to this, hopefully, you know, during this downtime, we'll get some movement in the case, and then hopefully, we'll be able, if that happens, we'll be able to film that, and and we'll be able to do a follow up to this. That's 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 the most important thing to me right now, is to be able to follow up on what the show was for. If we can't get this evidence tested at the end of this, then the show was for nothing. So we need to push, push, push the entire purpose of the series. Once you see the whole thing, once we get through the whole thing, you know, if you've seen it all already, the entire purpose is to get the evidence tested to try to solve the case and find a resolution. And so that needs to happen. And if and when it does happen, I believe it will, then then obviously we'll want to come back and, and document that as well. So not to derail this, but as a friend, I know we talked about this, and this is obviously we're talking behind the scenes. Explain that setup a little bit, that that interview room setup, because I know that took a, a big toll on you too, the way the lighting was set and everything. It was torture. You know, we we joke about it now, but in the moment when we were in there, it was genuinely torture. So so that those scenes where I'm interviewing, it was a pitch black room, and of course they had you know some kind of drop behind me with the you know it, so they could make it look the way it looked. There was a six foot by four foot giant light that was about twenty four inches away from my forehead, pointed straight down at me. And that was the only light in the room that I could see. There were some lights behind me, but it was pitch black. And then the way, if you notice in all those scenes, I look like I'm talking to you. Like I'm looking right down the barrel of the camera. 
and that was intentional, and I was, but the way they did that is they use what oftentimes gets used as a teleprompter. It's almost like a periscope. It's a series of mirrors, uh, and, and the way we did it is Dominique, my showrunner, who was in a similar situation, she had to have a light in her face too so I could see her. She was off to the side behind a curtain looking into a little box, and the mirrors made it so her face was floating right in front of the camera, like like right in front of the the lens of the camera. So she would ask me questions for me to to ask and, and prompt me to talk about things, and I would be looking at her face. But so the, the the result was basically the way you know the special forces people torture people to get them to talk. Besides waterboarding, uh, it's pretty close. It felt pretty close to waterboarding, but you know it, it's a dark room with a bright light in your face. And to add to that, I, in the dark room, the only thing I can see is the light in my face and the floating head of my director in front of me that I'm talking to, like it's the Wizard of Oz or something. On interview days, we were in that room for 10 hours, you know, with, with little breaks. You know, we would go for, you, you, I got to the point where you were just, you were just praying for the memory cards to run out on the cameras because that meant, <laughs> that meant it, it did, you know, when we had to swap cards and batteries, like yeah. that was, that was a chance that I got to stand up and walk away for a minute. And it was at one point we got completely loopy. Domini was laying on the ground. That's the Domini Hoffman is, is our director uh, laying on the ground, laughing, couldn't stop laughing. Like, and, and it was funny because it's funny now because the other, you know, the, the other, the rest of the crew, uh, Christina Bashay, uh, Bashai, Bashai, <laughs> she just got married. Stevenson uh, was one of our, um, <laughs> But but Christina was one of our our main producers, and so she's in the other room, you know, watching on a screen, kind of prompting. Okay, th- these are these are the fill-ins that I need. I need them to talk about this. I need them to talk about this. Blah blah blah. Like she and Matt Graham, who's one of our other producers, Jeremy Hawk was one of our other producers. They were all in the other room. They were getting pissed because they thought that Dominique and I were, were were screwing around in there, and they didn't understand that we were literally losing our minds. Like like by the time by about the fourth or fifth day, we did these. We we cut it down to where like we can only do three hour segments. Or we're just gonna have to eat some money those days. Like we can do it for three hours, take a lunch break, take a couple hours off, and then do two or three more hours because it just it, I can't describe to you what it does to you, but it, it literally makes you lose your mind. Like you can't think straight. You're going cross eyed, feel sick, and it just your your brain doesn't work anymore. Uh, but yeah, so that was that was my fun experience of sitting in that room talking to all you guys. Yeah, I never thought it would work like that. Like with the imagery and displaying her face like that on the camera, it's really, it's really strange. And I didn't know that's how they did it. Yeah, it's it. You know, that was a choice by Dominique, our director, who was awesome. I mean, she to me, you know, especially when we get into the third and fourth parts, the closing of it, which I mean, I I I feel the way they cut it together was so powerful, and we're I don't want to, we'll get into that later. But you know, that was that was what Dominique wanted. She wanted. What, you know, she said, I want the power of you reaching through that camera to the audience because this isn't we're not just telling a story. You know, the, the, the purpose of this was not to tell a story. The purpose of this was to solve this case and, and to do it through crowds, crowdsourcing and to use the audience to help us. And so there needs to be a connection to the audience. So she came up with this idea to do it. And then, of course, we all we all regretted it during the process. And then now that it's all done, it's like, yeah, that looks great. Well, didn't wasn't there some science behind it? Like you, like you, you look, you you actually physically look different when you're looking at a person as opposed to looking at a camera. Yeah, there's yeah, and I, I don't probably science or some kind, but it's definitely within the industry. It's well known that you know if somebody's just like look literally looking down the barrel of the camera to to do a scene like that, it's absolutely not the same. Your eyes focus differently. Your facial expressions are different. It's it's not the same as if you're looking at a another human being's face. Your your body just the muscles in your body and your face are different when you're when you're talking to another human. So that's why we did it that way. It's awesome. Jenny says, "I'm interested in the contents of Stevie's stomach. They seem to indicate he has to have gone home to eat at some time after school. Could you discuss the time frame you believe he had to have eaten based on the time that veggie was cooked by Pam?" And then marry that into Terry Hobbs' timeline as far as what we know regarding his movements that day. I would like to know if you think Terry could have been home when Stevie went home and ate. Now, before you start on that, let me add something to that. Knowing this, because you 
talked about it on the the episode, this episode that we're re recapping. This is my biggest disappointment in the show is that they didn't talk about this. Me too. And I honestly didn't notice that they didn't put it in there until I watched it that week. So like I, I obviously got to review as an executive producer, I got to review the cuts and and make notes. And in the moment of of that process, I was like, oh, this is good. This is good. Everything you got in there is good. I didn't notice that that was left out until I watched the final series. And I was like, wait a minute. We never got to the, the stomach contents or Betty Johnson's statement that said she saw Stevie going home that day or riding his bike alone that day. Uh, so, yeah, I was I was disappointed just like you were um, because we had an in-depth conversation with Dr. Rebecca Shue about it very specifically. And she very, very specifically said, yeah, I would say that that the partially digested green vegetable material in Stevie Branch's stomach means that he had eaten green vegetables, she said, within two hours of his death. And, and and as as I mentioned on the show, and she mentioned, there's there's a window there. There's other factors uh, that could that could make that more or less. But that's I, I had said that on on this podcast episode that you know it means that he ate within 90 minutes, two hours of his death. That's from a, and and I saw there, and I think Mike, there was a follow up question to this, which I'll I'll cover in this. But I I saw people talking about this on the fan page on Facebook about how long it takes. And somebody said that it could, it's four hours, whatever. I don't know. I got my information from Dr. Warner Spitz's um, uh, textbook on uh, on medical legal investigation of death, and then more specifically, I discuss it directly with Dr. Shu about you know what that could mean as far as the vegetable materials in the stomach. So I'm not going to get into the the Terry Hobbs stuff and all that. We'll talk about that timeline later, and it could have nothing to do with Terry. But this is based my opinion based on what it was explained to me by the experts. In a, there is a range, but for a healthy, active, fit eight year old, it's usually around 90 minutes up to two hours for food to pass out of the stomach into the, into the intestines. So all I can tell you is within two hours of the time Stevie died, he ate those vegetables. Now there's been talk about, you know, Pam. Pam at one point said that she made broccoli, and then at another point she said that she had green beans, and that was Stevie's favorite. I'm not saying any of that's not true, but I can't rely on that. You can't rely on that. The whole point of part two of this series, Memories, was that we're not going to be able to solve this case based on memories because nobody's memories are accurate. We have to use science. So we go to the science. What do we know? We can only work on what we know. We know that Stevie had to have eaten green vegetables with around two hours, within two hours when he died. So the time I use for my example, and I still believe if, if I had to to bet on it, I would say that the boys were killed right around 7 o'clock, give or take a few minutes, but right around 7 o'clock, which would mean that sometime after 5 o'clock, Stevie ate those vegetables. That's all we know. Now, where did he? so then the question is, where did he get the vegetables? Well, we have no reports, no indication from anyone that he went to anyone else's house and had dinner. So that's not saying it didn't happen, but it doesn't seem to be that he went anywhere to eat the vegetables. We know that Stevie typically was a rule follower. We know that Stevie didn't have a watch, but he was supposed to be home before Pam went to work, which she left at like quarter till five. So my hypothesis is that Stevie went home as he was supposed to to eat dinner, but he was late. And that he did eat that those green vegetables in his house. Uh, somebody asked, well, well, Pam said she had made Salisbury steak and mashed potatoes as well, along with like green beans. Why didn't he? I don't know. All I can tell you is what I know is that he he had to have gone home, in my opinion, and he had to have eaten those vegetables sometime after 5 p.m. Now, as far as I will say, as far as how that connects to Terry, that does not mean that Terry knows that he went home. It also does not mean that Terry saw him go home. Doesn't mean those things didn't happen, but this is this science here does not prove anything about Terry Hobbs. All it proves is that Stevie had eaten green vegetables. Now, people have talked about maybe it was something they ate at school because there was pickles in their lunch. There's just, based on what the experts are telling me, maybe other experts are telling you something different, eating lunch at noon and having pickles 
there's no way that that would have still been partially digested and in his stomach. We even asked Dr. Shu, well, what if Pam was wrong? And what if at 3.30 in the afternoon, he ate some green beans before he went out to play and she just didn't know it or didn't remember it? And she said the same thing. There may be some remnants left in there, but they would have been more fully digestible. They would digest it if there was anything left in his stomach. And it wouldn't have been even identifiable as as like vegetable material. It would have been broken down too far from that point. So she said, no, that, that had to have, in her opinion, he had to have eaten sometime after 5 p.m. Or, you know, if, if they were killed at 6.30, then that would move back to 4.30. Or if they were killed at 7.30, it would move back up to 5.30, you know, as far as the, the back end of that. But that's all we really know. Other people said, well, how do you know they didn't eat him in the ditch? Or eat, I've heard people theorize maybe ate some seaweed or something in the ditch. That would have, first of all, it had been too close to the time of his death. It would have been very easy, easy to identify what that was in his stomach. And there's just no evidence of the crime scene that anything like that happened. Uh, but someone did make a good point on the fan page that just because he ate after that and he maybe had to return home to get the food doesn't necessarily mean he ate it at home, meaning he could have ran inside grabbed a handful of green beans, jumped back on his bike and rode away and ate him somewhere else. Yes, that is possible also. Uh, again, it seems unlikely to me, but it's something you can't rule that out. All we know from the science and the medical evidence based on what the experts have told me is that sometime after 5 p.m., Stevie Branch ate some vegetables somewhere. All right. Lisa says, who was Bob having lunch with when, quote, all the kindness was sucked out of the room? Uh, that is Terry Hobbs. And I think I mentioned it before, but I, someone in that thread, which by the way, please don't, um, answer questions in that thread because it makes it harder for Mike to find the questions, uh, for the, for the follow-up. But in this case, it was helpful because somebody pointed out that it was Terry Hobbs because Terry talked about it and they put a link up to a YouTube video where he was on some nons, uh, I think William Ramsey or somebody like that, uh, had him on a podcast and Terry actually talked about uh, having lunch with me, he called it dinner, but it was, it was lunchtime. It was one o'clock in the afternoon. So it was Terry. We had met, uh, by the way, if you watch that, there's a lot of stuff that is not accurate in there. He said something about that right after I had lunch with them, that I met with, um, Ryan Clark and that I met with Dominique Tier. I've never met Dominique Tier, and I didn't meet with Ryan Clark until long time after that. And I'd met with him a long time before that. But anyway, it was Terry Hobbs that I was having lunch with. Ginger wants to know, was George Taylor asked the following questions? Question one, where did you go with the boys after crossing the bridge? Two, did you see anyone in the woods? Three, why did you leave and when you did, did you see anyone when you left? I know you don't think he was the fourth boy, but what if? I would like to know how he answers those questions. And on another note, isn't it possible that the bikes were tossed in the water before the suspect entered the woods? Uh, well, for starters, uh, and maybe I didn't make this clear enough, or maybe I, I just misspoke, but I'm not saying that George Taylor wasn't the fourth boy, that, that, that he wasn't with the boys at some point during that afternoon. I think that he very well could have been. I think there was there was some some truth to what he was saying, but there was also a lot of not truth to what he was saying. And I think that a lot of the information that he gave us was filled in from online discussion forums, reading documents. People talking to him about the, the the case and the story over the years. I mean, it's, it's actually very obvious that a lot of what he was saying was that. Unfortunately, what that meant was it is complete. I don't know if George even knows what's fact and fiction anymore. You know, so it so it's hard to say. I think that he probably was, or at least yeah, probably is the right word. Probably was with the boys for some of the time that afternoon. I did ask all of those questions, and the problem is, for the first hour, George said didn't even see the boys that day. Then when I confronted with what he had written on Facebook, then it was, oh, I was with them. We rode around and that was it. I didn't go over the pipe with them. And then it was, okay. And, and it basically it was me saying, well, look here, like here, you wrote here that you were actually on the other side of the pipe in the woods with the boys. Okay. Yeah, I was, I was over there with them. And then, it, and it really, it, it, it just, to me, it was a lot more of George trying to tell me the truth. And then when he knew when I would when I would confront him with things he had said then he was trying to explain why he said those things I think that he probably he was being the most honest with me at the beginning and he was not being 
truthful when he was discussing it on Facebook, and then he was trying to kind of back out of that and trying to explain it. In some of the Facebook posts, it gets very detailed about you know being over there, what happened on the other side of the pipe, who he saw, very incriminating stuff for for certain people. But during my interview, one thing he would never do is say that he saw anybody on the other side of the pipe, and or you know that that anything scared him. It was just oh, I got over there and I decided to go home, and that was it. So he just. He didn't, I'm assuming this person, maybe not, but I'm assuming this person probably has read some of the stuff George has written and and was wondering why those questions weren't asked. They were all asked, and he just did not repeat to me what he had written online. In fact, he denied a lot of those elements of what he saw. Uh, as far as the bikes being thrown in the water, I think that the bikes being thrown in the water prior to the murders would be... I don't think that's what happened. I think that would be an indicator of complete premeditation that that whoever killed these boys went there intending to kill them. Um, somebody has mentioned that, well, maybe they just, you know, they were mad and that was part of their punishment. Like, oh, I'm going to throw your bikes in the water. I don't think that, you know, I believe our profile is pretty accurate. I think it was someone with a known personal relationship, an authoritative relationship to at least one of the boys. I don't think that that person would throw someone else's bike in the water, you know, so. Uh, you know, if it was somebody that, you know, we had Stevie and Michael had bikes. So say if it was, say, for example, if it was like Terry Hobbs, you see Stevie's bike there. I don't see him grabbing and throwing Michael Moore's bike into the water as well. I don't think that whoever did this, that it was premeditated. I think that the bikes were just an indicator of where they were at. And once they found them and and they did what they did, the bikes had to go in the water for as part of the concealment. Could be wrong, but that's just my my theory on it. All right, our last question comes from TJ. In the documentary and on this episode, you said you don't think George Taylor was the fourth boy, and I agree. However, on True Crime Garage, I believe you said you found who the fourth boy is, and I don't recall ever hearing who it was. Could you clear this up for me, please? Yeah, in that interview, I was I was referring to George Taylor. So that, that, that interview was a little weird because we recorded... Uh, me and, and Nick and Captain recorded that interview a week before the show aired, but but it dropped for them the day after the show aired. So I, you know, a lot of that was trying to remember, you know, I, and some of it I didn't know how things were cut together, um, and so I had mentioned on there that yeah, we actually figured out who the fourth boy was, uh, and you see you hear from him on the show, and I was referring to George Taylor, and part of that was I would I I couldn't give away the details of how that all played out with George before the show aired. I didn't want to spoil it for, for Nick and Pat while we were doing the interview. So, but, but I was referring to George in that interview. All right. That's all we got this week, Bob. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for, for tuning in again. Uh, thanks for all of your continued support. We appreciate all of it. Uh, definitely very much appreciate Mike and Zach working with us to make sure this happens from home. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy Sunday's episode. Uh, and part three of the series is when Jim Clemente finally delivers his profile. In my opinion, he delivers the 12 most compelling minutes of true crime television ever during part three of the docuseries. And so rather than me talk about it, Jim actually joins me this Sunday to break down the entire part three of the docuseries. Uh, so that's coming up in a couple days. Everybody stay safe, stay home, and we'll talk to you next week. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. A big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. 
On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. We're dumped somewhere, so I'm just going to sit here and leave everything recorded, and hopefully they call me back. Still rolling. Is, is Zach still with us? To my knowledge. I'm hoping he can still hear us, and he's like not trying to mess up how we finish this, so he's still staying on the line. That's what I think is going on. A, I got a text for He just said, he said, I'm still rolling. Yeah, yeah. So he probably can, I don't know. He can hear us and everything probably. We just can't talk to him.